0: we consider this passage of scripture and consider something of the ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You've told us that all these things in the scriptures are given to us as examples. We know that specifically from the Old Testament passages. Those are examples for us to learn from, but is Christ no doubt also our example? We are told that we are to be Christ-like in our dealings. And so we pray that you would help us to understand something of the ministry of Christ to pattern our own lives after, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you ever think that you're busy and overwhelmed with life, with work, with the kids, with whatever else demands all your attention... I would encourage you just to look up this passage in the book of Mark and consider a day in the life of Jesus. What we've read here from verses 21 to 39 actually cover two days of the ministry of Christ. You'll see verses 21 to 34 give us an outline of one day of Jesus' ministry. And the people found themselves absolutely amazed at what Christ was doing and also how Christ was doing it. We find him at the beginning of that day in Capernaum. It's a Sabbath day, we read in verse number 21. He's there in the synagogue and he's preaching. And the people are astounded by his doctrine because they had never seen anybody like this speak with such authority. Not only did he have authority in the scriptures, but they're also just mesmerized and confused, frankly. We see in verse 27 that even the devils are subject to him, that he can simply command and, and say a word, and the devils instantaneously obey what they are told. Because, you see, while he was preaching there that day, a demon possessed man in the synagogue began crying out, and the Lord simply spoke. That demon commanded that demon out. That afternoon, you see in verse 29, that afternoon they end up in Simon's home, and Simon's mother-in-law has a fever, and the Lord goes in and heals her of that fever, and instantaneously she is healed of that. And the news of Christ and what he was doing had spread like wildfire, as it were, through the city. And we find, verse 33, the whole city had come and gathered at Simon's door. People with all sorts of problems, all sorts of issues, whether it be sicknesses or demons. And the Lord just systematically began to deal with all of those. Healing the sick and casting out the demons. And so what we see in this day's events is really just an amazing display of the power and the glory of Christ. But Mark continues, verse 35, to the next day, the next morning. And it gives us more details about the life and ministry of Christ. It gives us a glimpse into, I don't mean this in a flippant way, but Jesus' day planner it gives us a glance into a glimpse into what's on our lord's schedule. And what we see here is the ministry of Jesus Christ. There are three specific things about the ministry of Christ that I want us to see this morning. And before we look at those, I want to just underscore the importance of what it is to look at these things. I alluded to it in the opening prayer. If Christ is our example, then it behooves us to learn from Christ. It behooves us to look at Christ's own ministry, Christ's dealings with other people, the way Christ handled himself, the way Christ came and went and moved and spoke and all the rest of it to pattern our lives after that. Because the truth is, we each have a ministry ourselves. It wasn't very long ago I preached on the subject of servants of Christ. And I made the statement in that message that you all, whether you like it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you perceive it to be the case or not, you are a servant of Christ. And I made the statement then, and I'll make the statement again now, you're either a good servant or a bad servant. And now I'm using the word minister instead of servant, but I'm really talking about the same thing. You're either a good minister of Christ, you're either a good servant of Christ, or you're a bad one. There really is not a middle ground. There is really not a place of indifference. And it doesn't matter your occupation. It doesn't matter your role of life. Some may have a much larger circle of influence. You you may have way more contacts In your phone, then another guy has contacts in his phone. You you may meet with people during the day. You may just have a a larger circle of people that you rub shoulders with and influence and, and speak to and deal with. You might have a very small circle of influence. Your circle of influence might not go much farther than the four walls of your own home. But regardless of that, you have a circle of influence. So it doesn't matter if you're a preacher. It doesn't matter if you're a businessman. It doesn't matter if you're a dad, a mom, a neighbor, a friend. Regardless of your station in life, regardless of your age, it doesn't matter if you're seven or if you're 70. You still... If you're born again, if you're a follower of Christ, you still are a minister of Christ. It might be more public. It might be far more private. But regardless of the exposure that you perceive yourself to have, you still are a minister of the Lord Jesus. And so that ministry that you have for Christ is one that you are either doing a good job at, or you are doing a poor job at. And I trust, I hope, that if you are truly born again, your desire is to do a good job in ministering for Christ, in following Him, in acting like Him. And so if we learn from the ministry of Christ, it will help us to become better servants for our Master. And so really what we're dealing with this morning is really nothing more than just a consistent Godly Christian life. That really is the point. That really is the the sum and substance of what we're going to be talking about today. What What is it to live the Christian life? What is it to follow the Lord? What is it to live like Jesus? And so I want to deal with that this morning, looking at this subject of the ministry of Christ. And the first thing I want you to see is in verse number 35 there. That the ministry of Christ was sustained by prayer. The ministry of Christ was sustained by prayer. And so you see right there at the beginning of verse number 35, we're told that it's the morning. And it says that Jesus rose up a great while before day. And he went out and departed. He was in Simon's home. He departed into a solitary or a secret place, and there he prayed. And so you remember, I've already mentioned the fact that from verses 21 to 34, we have kind of an outline of events of Christ's previous day. Most people, after a a long and, and busy and full day, aren't very interested in rising up early in the morning a great while before day. Most people would want to stay in bed. Most people would want to get more rest. Most people would want to not get up before the sun rose. But here we find Christ's ministry in Christ not doing what normal and most people do. Christ had been busy really by anybody's standards on that previous day. He had preached all morning. He had healed sick people. He had people coming and going for who knows how long at Simon's home, probably past dark from what we read in uh, the passage here, because in verse number 32, it says that at even when the sun did set, they brought him all these diseased and sick folks. So who knows how long into the night this went, Who knows what time it was that they all, you know, went to bed. But here Christ, before sunup, is up and he is praying. Christ didn't operate his ministry the way that most of us do. After a busy day's work, Christ knew that what he needed was actually more prayer, not less. More time with the Lord, not less. And I think we can find through the ministry of Christ that it was praying and his communication with the Father that sustained him in many ways during his ministry. It was that vital lifeline that he had with the Lord. And so we see in this passage that he was up before day. Daylight was when the work day started. That was the agricultural society. The sun came up, you were up. The sun went down and you were down. That was the normal course of events. But Christ used this time before daybreak to go to that solitary place to pray. You know, we're early on in the ministry of Christ. This is Mark chapter 1, right? And so we're very early. You go back to the beginning of chapter 1 and we see Christ's baptism. And so Christ is not long into his public ministry. But Christ in his public ministry will find, as you go through the rest of the ministry of Christ, he never did anything for pomp or for show. You you even read some just kind of passing by the way statements of what Christ says to this demon. Look at verse 25, hold thy peace. Um, That's just a polite way of saying stop talking. Uh, And later when they came at night, verse 34, Christ suffered not the devils to speak. Christ was not there for a big pomp and show. Christ was not there to use these devils as some means of advertisement for him. You know that many times when he healed the sick, he told them, don't say anything. Don't tell anybody about this. Well, we find the people go and they tell everybody about this, but that's beside the point of what Christ had said. Christ was not a showman. Christ was not running the Barnum and Bailey Circus trying to get everybody's attention everywhere he went. And so when Christ prayed, here we see that he went into this secret place. Christ could have prayed publicly. He could have, he could have took an opportunity... sorry, taken an opportunity even in front of his disciples to pray in such a way that it would have been very impressive. He could have prayed in such a way that even the Pharisees would have stood and been very, very impressed with the prayers that he was praying. But we find Christ never doing anything out of pride or vainglory. Christ did not, operate his ministry in such a way to get attention from other people. And so we can learn something here about our own praying. Christ knew that prayer was so important that he was willing to give up the comfort of more sleep in order to seek the Lord for the needs that he knew were just over the horizon. And so Christ was sustained in his ministry by prayer. Because prayer is a means of communion that we have with the Father. Prayer is that lifeline, as it were, with the Lord. Uh, it, just a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week in the prayer meeting, uh, speaking about prayer, referenced Pastor Kimbrough's uh, take, and i would never heard anybody say this before, Pastor Kimbrough, but I like it, of that weapon that we have in Ephesians 6, part of the armor And that piece of the armor of all prayer, he likens it to the modern-day walkie-talkie to be able to speak and communicate with the Lord. Well, Christ is a man. We find him praying constantly. And that communion that he had with the Father is evidence of the great love that he had with the Father. It's evidence of the closeness of that relationship. Someone that you have a close and good relationship with is someone that you want to talk to. If you don't have any relationship with that person, you don't care anything about talking to them. If you have a bad relationship with somebody, you definitely don't care anything about talking to them. But the better relationship you have with someone, the more you want to spend time with them, the more you want to speak with them. And we find Christ in his ministry in constant communication with the Lord. Also, we know that Christ's ministry was sustained by prayer because as you study the ministry of Christ, you'll find that before every major event, Christ was praying. It's interesting to take note of all the the, the big events in the life of Christ, as it were. You find just previous to those, him in prayer. Seeking the Lord. Let me give you just a sample of what we see here. In verse number 38, just right here where we are, Christ is praying. And the next thing on his agenda, let us go to the next towns that I can preach there also. And so before he he went to the next place to preach, he was in prayer. Uh, Again, just a sampling here. Before he chose his 12 disciples, you'll find in Luke 6, verse 12, Christ prayed. Before he fed the 5,000, you'll find in Mark 6, he prayed. In Luke 9, 28, he prayed just before he went to the Mount of Transfiguration. Before he gave that great declaration, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Before that sermon, Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, Christ prayed. Before he taught his disciples to pray, in Luke 11, it's a different episode than the Sermon on the Mount, but Luke 11 records the Lord's Prayer, and the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. Christ had been praying. At the tomb of Lazarus, John 11, 41 to 42, Christ is praying. Before Peter denied the Lord, the Lord told Peter, Peter, I've prayed for you. Luke twenty-two thirty-two. 32 During the night of the Last Supper, John 17, that high priestly prayer, we find Christ praying. Even as he's on the cross, we find Christ praying. And then after the resurrection, Luke 24, 30, again, we find Christ in prayer. And so you can look at all these big major events and what's happening in Christ's life, and before them all, he's seeking the Lord in prayer. There's good instruction for us here. How are we going to serve the Lord? How are you going to be a good servant of the Lord in whatever your specific and particular sphere of influence is, whether it be big or small, if you're not in prayer? If your life is not sustained by prayer and communication with the Father? You know, there's a sense in which we can just simply ask the question, how proud and arrogant do we really think we are to even attempt life without prayer? How can you rear your children without prayer? How can you discipline your children rightly without prayer? How can, how can you discipline your children rightly and not in anger, not in a way that's unjust, not in a way that flies off the handle without your life being tempered by prayer? How can you love your spouse rightly without prayer? How can you make business decisions? How, how, can, you, how can you operate in the workplace without Prayer. How can you do anything without seeking the Lord, without help from heaven? Christ was sustained by prayer because prayer is that source of spiritual strength that we all have to have. The very reason that as a man Christ prayed was for that spiritual strength. We, we think of Christ, he's the God-man. He is God in the flesh and inherently in himself. He was still infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In himself, in in the person of Christ, he still is God in the flesh, and so he's still infinite, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of his power and all of his abilities to do everything. But yet still in his humanity as a man, he prayed. And he sought that constant communion and fellowship with the Lord. And so really the lesson is really quite very simple. If the God of heaven made flesh needed to pray well then how much more do you and i need to seek the lord in prayer we each have our own unique circle of influence we have our own unique ministry in serving the lord in whatever capacity that the lord has given to us to use and exercise the spiritual gifts that he's given to us how can we do that without praying. If Christ needed to pray, well, then it stands to reason that you and I need to pray as well. Individually, yes. But even collectively as a church, we need to seek the Lord. We need to pray. We are a praying congregation. We have various planned and organized prayer meetings, and they're, for the most part, well attended and participated in, in praying. But we pray that the Lord will bless the ministry of this church, the spiritual growth of the individuals of this congregation that we would go on with the Lord from strength to strength. And So Christ's ministry was sustained by prayer. That's the first thing. The second thing I want you to see is that Christ's ministry was focused on preaching. He had a ministry that was focused on preaching. There are many things that Christ did publicly, but there's one that stands I believe, head and shoulders above everything else that Christ did in his public ministry. And you can think about a lot of different public acts of Christ, a lot of public things. We have some mentioned here in this passage. And you might say that one of Christ's main focuses was casting out demons. Well, in this passage, we see him doing that. We see him doing it in the synagogue. We see him doing it outside of you know the front porch of Simon's house. He's casting out demons. So he did a lot of that. And we're even told, the Apostle John tells us, that Christ came, he was manifest to destroy the works of the devil. And so that was definitely one of the focuses of Christ's ministry, was to cast out demons, but it wasn't the primary focus. You might say that he focused on healing the sick. Well, again, he did a lot of that. And we see him on, here on Simon's Front porch healing sick folks. And you see all through the gospel, him healing people with all sorts of various diseases. He, even in this passage, healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And that is one of the reasons that Christ came was to heal the sick. But again, that wasn't the primary focus of his ministry. And you may say that one of the things he focused on was doing miracles. And again, he did many miracles all over the place, town to town. He went to, he did Miracles of all sorts. But again, that wasn't the primary focus of his ministry. I want you to look at a few passages. Mark 1, 21, the first word, or the first one we taught there. And they went into Capernaum and straightway on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. Well, I think it's fair enough for us to read, preach there in that verse as well. But turn over to Luke chapter 4. This is a very important passage because this is early in Christ's ministry as well, Luke chapter four. In Luke four, we have the temptation of Christ, and so that's in the wilderness, right? And so, you to remind you of the order of events of Christ's public ministry is first public act as it were was his baptism and it was right after his baptism right on the heels of his baptism that he was led into the wilderness for those 40 days and was tempted of Satan and the get thee behind me Satan um, and and quoting Deuteronomy to Satan um, to do away with Satan's temptations But then we find, starting in verse number 14, that he returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And he entered into the synagogue, and he took up the Scriptures. And he turned to a passage, you see in verse number 17, in the book of Isaiah. And he opened that specific passage of Scripture from Isaiah. And he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me, to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath set me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then Christ closed the book. He closed that Bible. And he said in verse 21, this day is this scripture fulfilled in Your ears. And so here is Christ Himself. Just this is kind of the first thing He did in a public way in the synagogue, was declaring what His ministry was. And you'll find in that passage that He read from Isaiah, this is what the Lord has appointed me to do, anointed me to do, is to preach. And you see, three times. That word preached is used, preach the gospel to the poor. And that phrase, preach the gospel, is the Greek word that we use for evangelize, euangelio. And so he was to evangelize, he was to preach. Preach deliverance to the captives, preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Later, the Apostle Paul will tell us that it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching, To save them that believe. Christ did many miracles. And sometimes his miracles were involved with and associated with his preaching. But miracles alone don't convert the soul. We know that. You remember the story that Christ spoke of the rich man and and Lazarus. That rich man that was in Abraham's bosom. And and the rich man had calls out and he, he says, can you send somebody to warn my friends? In Luke 16, 31, Christ says, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. Even if there was a miracle of somebody raising from the dead and going and, and you know, a guy that they all knew, he died, he buried, and that guy is risen from the dead and he goes and tells them and, and that miracle happens if they won't listen to the testimony of Moses and the prophets translation, if they won't listen to the preaching of the word, then a miracle is not going to impress them in such a way to convert their heart. The preaching of the word, if they won't hear that, they're not going to hear anything else. And so seeing healings or seeing demons cast out doesn't save a person. There is... There is a content of doctrine that a person must know in order to be saved. Not that a person has to be a theologian, not that they have to pass a a Bible quiz test or anything like that, but there's something that they have to know. They have to know that they're a sinner before a holy God. They have to know that there is forgiveness in Christ if they would come to him and plead for mercy. There, There is a content of doctrine that must be communicated. And so if you look back here at Mark chapter 1, back to where we started in verse number 38, you see something there that might surprise you. When Simon wakes up that morning, he, you know, Jesus he, that's where he went to sleep. He's not there. And so he gets up and he goes and looks for him, verse 36, Simon and they that were with him. And so you go back up and you understand verse number 29. It was Simon and Andrew with James and John. So it was the four of them were there at Simon's house. They get up and they go looking for Christ. He wasn't where he went to bed. And they do find him in this solitary place, whatever it is, down the road, out in the backyard. We don't know, but wherever he was. And they're very excited Because Simon perceives that he has for the Lord some tremendous news. Things are going very well in this ministry of Christ. Because now their master, this one that they have started to follow, is famous. And they're part of this entourage of a man who is famous in Israel. Look at verse 37. And when they found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. All men seek for thee. He's famous. So famous that at daybreak there was already a crowd gathered to see more of these miracles, to see more of these healings, to see more of this, what they perceive simply, a show. But look at what Christ says in verse 38. He said, let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. Notice he doesn't say this is wonderful, let me go back and fulfill their curiosity. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, the more miracles I do here, the bigger and greater following I'm going to end up having. He doesn't say that either. He says, let's go to a different place. Let's go someplace else. These people were looking for a show, not the gospel. And Christ was not interested in giving them a show. He was interested in giving them the gospel, and he already had in that place. And so now it was time to go to another place. Often Christ did heal the sick. Often Christ did cast out the demons. But that was not the major focus. The major focus of his ministry and what his heart was set on was preaching the message of the gospel. And again, we learn something here for ourselves the focus of our lives as servants of Christ should have as part of its focus, regardless of your circle of influence, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't mean necessarily the formal preaching of the word. I don't mean necessarily that you give your friends three Ps in a poem, you know, an outline of you know, some Bible text. I don't mean preaching in that formal sense necessarily, but I also don't mean what many refer to as just simply lifestyle evangelism. I'm in favor of both of those things, but that's not necessarily either one of what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the opening of your mouth and the declaring of what God has said in a way that may be your personal testimony in a way that may be a quotation of a verse with some meaning of what the Lord means by what he says there. But the focus of our lives needs to be evangelism and the declaring of the gospel. The focus of every church has to be the preaching of the gospel. You know, in many places, what has happened is activities and programs have really become the the tail that wags the dog. The activities and the programs and the weekly schedule of this is on Monday night and this on Tuesday night and Wednesday night and Thursday night and Friday night, and there's always something going. There's something for the ladies, there's something for the men, there's something for the kids, there's something for the youth, there's something for the young adults, there's something for the something for everybody. And it becomes a church that's focused on all the events and the plans and the things and all the stuff that's going on. And I say that ends up being the tail that wags the dog. And people end up coming to and being involved in churches because of the fellowship that is associated in those places and the excitement that is going. And from a church leadership perspective they have to keep the wheel spinning they have to keep the thing, they have to keep the people engaged you know somebody comes in they've been there 2 weeks and they've got them teaching Sunday school they've been there 3 weeks and they're hey do you want to be up for deacon this next election you know it's just and it's it's always stuff going on and it really just amounts to the hype and the pomp and the show of the whole church machine that ends up being built and there's churches all over this community that basically follow that model they follow that plan well you don't go to those churches you come here but we do a different thing and we do a different thing on purpose we do a different thing because from the leadership perspective of this church and most of you are here because of this We have a different focus. We have a different emphasis. And our emphasis is on the preaching of the Word of God. That should be and needs to be and must be the emphasis and the focus. Our church doesn't have a liturgy. If you have ever been involved in other Presbyterian churches or other Reformed churches that have a liturgy, um, we don't follow a, a traditional liturgy in that sense. We have a very simplistic service outline, a, a very simplistic order of service. And you all have it memorized. You all know when you're supposed to stand up and sit down. And you all know that I messed up because I was supposed to do the opening Bible reading. And, you know, that one thing gets out of order and it's like, what in the world's going on? Where are we? You know, Twilight Zone kind of church. Well, we have an order of events of, of things that we do. We don't follow a liturgy in that sense. But if you've been in a church that does, some Reformed liturgies focus on the preaching even in that liturgical way because they will have an aspect of Scripture reading and prayer and some congregational singing, and then they will have the sermon, and then after the sermon, they'll do the collection of tithes and offerings, They'll do more singing. Most do communion weekly and something else after that. And so, what they're trying to do in that is even if you, you know, charted everything and put everything in a clock, and, you know, this will be three minutes, five minutes, three minutes, five minutes, the sermon, three minutes, five minutes, three minutes, five minutes. And and they're trying to, even by the time and, and the order of events, emphasize the sermon in the middle, the sermon as the focus. And there's a reason for that. Because the preaching of the word and the ministry of, of of the gospel through the preaching of the word needs to be the primary focus. But many have departed from such a thing and especially you young people need to understand this because You might not always live in Winston-Salem. You might find yourself in a different town, a different city, and you have to look for a church. What are you looking for? If you walk into a church and you sit through a service, how can you know if this is the place the Lord would have me and my family worship? How can you know if this is the church that I should attend? What, What are some criteria? Well, if they don't have the preaching of the word as a primary focus, man, run for your life. Because if that's not the primary focus of the church, then it has a complete foundation that is shaky. And you're not, it's not going to be a safe place for your family in the long run if the focus is, of the preaching is not central. Now, I've said some things before about a pulpit and... You know, in, in some ways, I say them kind of in jest and tongue in cheek. But I have never seen a pulpit that I thought was big enough. I, this is too little. Right? Many today have replaced a pulpit with a little stool and a little lectern thing. Right? The pulpit has become portable. The pulpit is what it, whatever acts as the pulpit, whether it be a little you know doodad, you know lectern kind of thing is brought center stage by a stagehand. The band has been there. They've done their thing. and, And they've successfully entertained the crowd. And their part is finished. And the portable pulpit is brought to the middle. Well, to me that speaks volumes of a church's thought process and presuppositions When it comes to the preaching of the word. That would be incredibly dogmatic here. But I think you understand the sentiment. There's a reason that the Puritans referred to the pulpit as the sacred desk. That's what they called it. The sacred desk. And there's a sense in which a pulpit front and center of if you want to refer to it as church architecture, church interior design, that the pulpit front and center of the congregation is a symbol of the authority of the preaching of the word of God. It means something. It communicates something. It communicates that this is the primary thing. Not that this is an afterthought thing. Not that this is a thing that we bring in after the main thing is over. The main thing has taken center stage, and now there's a new thing taking center stage. No, the pulpit takes center stage, and therefore the preaching of the word takes center stage. If the pulpit's been replaced, then that is a very good indication that that is not the church you need to belong to. The pulpit represents something. And so there is the preaching of the word. That was the focus of Christ's ministry. It needs to be the focus of our lives. It needs to be the focus of our church. I mentioned lifestyle evangelism. There is something to be said for that. There is something to be said of the consistent, methodical living out of the Christian life, living peaceably among all men and people in your office, People in the workplace, they know you're a Christian. You don't necessarily have to be in their face all the time. But it's one of those things that when heartbreak happens, who do they go talk to? Who do they they seek advice from? Be that kind of person in, in your circle of influence. But yet lifestyle evangelism can't be a sufficient focus for you. Because there has to be the declaration of truth. They're not going to see you at your little cubicle, pray for your lunch, and understand, just simply from that, you, know, general revelation of common grace, that Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive them of their sins. There must be, at some point, some declaration of, of truth. And this is something about the preaching of the word. Preaching, the preaching of the word, whether it be your enunciation of truth to them, the the public preaching in this sense, preaching takes men and women to a crossroads. I think one of the reasons why many don't like or or they are uncomfortable or embarrassed of evangelism, of speaking to people one-on-one about the gospel and about Christ is because preaching, real preaching by nature is confrontational. Real preaching by by its very nature brings men and women to a place of decision. Real preaching, in a metaphorical way, grabs a person by the shirt and puts them against the wall and says, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with him? You have to make a decision here. It presents man with a very clear choice. You continue in this way and it's going to lead you to destruction or you follow Christ to everlasting life. And, and people have to be brought to that crossroads with preaching. It it demands that the hearer make a, a decision. One preacher said of preaching that if there is no summons, then there is no preaching. There must be a summons of the gospel. There must be a summons to the message to bring people to a place of decision. Continue lost or be saved. Continue a life of fear or trust the Lord. Continue in unbelief or have faith in Christ. Continue your discouragement or turn to God's promises. To continue in your own foolishness or trust the Lord. Preaching brings men and women to that place of crossroads and decision. This is the way you have to go. This is what God has said about your problem, and this is what God has said about your solution. Anything else is just really just motivational speaking. Anybody can give a motivational speech. But preaching brings men and women to a crossroads. And unfortunately, in too many places and in too many circumstances, uh, the presentation of the gospel is kind of like the free cookies that are available for the kids at the grocery store. You don't have to take the free cookie. The free cookie is just there. If you want a free cookie, you can take a free cookie. If you don't want a free cookie, you can walk on past the free cookies. And it doesn't make any difference one way or the other, whether you take a cookie or don't take a cookie. But we're not presenting people with religious options. When we preach, we're laying forth the word of God. It's not a man's opinion of what God says. It's just what God said. And so men and women must be brought to that place of crossroads. That does not mean that in our dealings with other people, we're constantly confrontational. I don't mean that at all. Christ, we don't find him with the average person confrontational. Christ was meek and lowly. Christ was gentle in dealing with sinners. The only time we ever find him... Confrontational, whether it be in the synagogue where he throws over the tables of the money changers, or where he woe to you scribes and Pharisees, in that way confrontational, is with the apostate religious leaders. Understand how I use the word angry, but Christ was angry with those who should have known better. Christ was angry with those who were purposefully leading people astray from Christ. That's when Christ got his back up. And that's when Christ was confrontational. But he meets this poor woman caught in adultery. And we don't find Christ ripping her up one side and down the other. We find Christ dealing with her in a way that was very gentle. And go and sin no more. When the blind and the lame and those came to him, we see Christ very gentle, very patient, very compassionate in his dealings with sinners, in his dealings with people that, can I put it this way, in their ignorance didn't know any better. And he preached to them. He dealt with them. He he spoke plainly to them. The woman at the well, Christ dealt with plainly and fairly, but forthrightly, he didn't beat around the bush. But he also was not confrontational and angered. He was patient and plain, loving and kind. Jesus is loving and kind. And this is the way we have to be in our preaching. Even our bringing people to a crossroads, it's not in this caustic way You know, I said metaphorically, you know, you grab somebody by the shirt, throw them against the wall, what are you going to do with Jesus? Obviously, that's metaphorically speaking. But patiently dealing with people, dealing with people with where they are, with the sin that they're in, but making it clear that there is a decision to be made. And also making it clear that no decision is a decision. To simply say, well, I'll think about this later, is a decision to say no to Christ. It is a decision to walk away. You see, the rich young ruler, when he left the presence of Christ, he knew exactly where he stood with Christ. Christ dealt with him very plainly. And when that man left, having rejected what Christ said, he left knowing that he was an idolater. He knew where he stood. Be it that woman caught in adultery, when she left, she also knew where she stood. And Christ dealt equally gently with both. One left not accepting Christ, and the other was humbled before Christ. But Christ brought both of those people a place of crossroads in, in his preaching to them. Trust Christ. So Christ was sustained by prayer. He had a ministry focused on preaching. And then one last thing, and that is that Christ was motivated by souls. He had a ministry that was motivated by souls. Christ did not do any of his work for his own aggrandizement. Uh, his ministry was for the benefit and focused on those that were around him. Uh, In Psalm 2, you don't necessarily have to turn there. I'm going to read you Psalm 2, verses 7 to 8. It says, I will declare the decree. The Lord said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Those that Christ asked for are are his inheritance, it is his elect, it is his possession, those that Christ asked for from before eternity. And they make up that innumerable company from every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation. And if you're saved, you're part of that number, you're you're part of that group that Christ has asked for, You're, you're part of his people. And so Christ always had the souls of men, those that he came to save in view. Go back to Mark 1, look at verse 38 again, where Christ says, you know, Peter comes like, Lord, there's all these people, come talk to them." And the Lord says, nope, we're, we're going to the next place. Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there. And again, you know, here's one of these words that you could just read past pretty quickly, but let me, let's preach there also. He's already preached here. And so now he's going to another place to preach because he's dealt with souls here. Now he's going to go to another place and deal with souls. He's going to go preach in other places, the next towns, and that's plural. He's going from place to place preaching because he has the souls of men in view. And there was a motivation in what he had come to do to save his people from their sins. Now, ultimately, that was going to be on the cross where he would do that work of saving his people from their sins, and that was... The, the ultimate motivation of his life, he had his face set as a flint to go to Jerusalem, and there was nothing going to stand in front of him and going to the cross. But along the way of that ministry, there was a heart's motivation for the souls of men and women. And so when he healed the sick, he dealt with their soul. When he cast out demons, he dealt with their soul. And that was a chief motivation. The love of Christ for sinners is so clearly seen through his whole ministry. And he was motivated to save his people from their sins. And so that translates for us into a motivation of life as well. How do we perceive and how do we see the people that are around us? Do we see them as those outside of Christ that have souls that are perishing? Do we see people that way? You know, I, I don't say this. I'm not patting myself on the back. It's just an illustration. But there's been many times. You, know, you drive to church, and you see, I mean, there's people going everywhere. And I've often thought to myself, where are these people going? And you pass by, and somebody's out in the yard doing you know, their flower bed or whatever. Somebody's pulling a boat or you know, whatever they're doing. But they're they're doing something. They're out doing something. And you don't have to be critical to understand this, but you perceive that the vast majority of these people, they're not on their way to church. Whether it be a church that's good, bad, or indifferent, whatever, they're not on their way to church. There's just no thought of the Lord. They're going about their business on the Lord's Day. And, you know, do you wonder... These people have no idea. They have no idea. And what are they pursuing? What are they chasing? Do you see them as dying souls in need of Christ? You guys know I do testing here at the church. Just this past week on Thursday, I had a lady call me, ask me questions about the Woodcock-Johnson test and I Explain to her how it was and kind of the format and the whole thing. And, oh, this sounds great. This is what my son needs. Perfect. Wonderful. Set up an appointment. Have an automated system that sends a confirmation email. Get it all set up for her. She gets the confirmation email. I'm on to the next call. I'm talking to another mom. And I've got an incoming call. And it's that same phone number, the lady that I just scheduled an appointment for. And so I got finished with the lady that I was talking to, hung up with her and called this lady back. Hey, you call. And she said, "I got the confirmation email. Do you do testing any place other than a church?" And I said, "Well, no ma'am, not really. That's I'm the associate pastor there, that's where I do the testing." And she said, "Well, my husband and I just really feel uncomfortable going to a church. We don't do anything that's religious. And I said, well, this isn't a Bible test. This is a, an academic assessment. I just use that as my facility. And she said, well, still, I just, my husband and I feel very uncomfortable coming going to any place that's religious. I'm going to have to cancel my appointment. Right? This isn't some heathen in Africa. This is somebody that literally drives by dozens and dozens of churches every day to the grocery store and back. But do we see people like that? You know, that's kind of a more obvious thing. That person has declared, I hate God. I mean, she didn't use those exact words, but that's what she said. But you, you come and go and you pass people every day. Do you see them as lost and dying souls? Does that motivate you at all to tell others of Christ? And so there's a lot that we can learn for ourselves from considering Christ's ministry. Christ prayed, and so, so should we. Christ was a preacher, and so ought we to be. And Christ was motivated by the lost souls around him, and so ought we to be. And may the Lord help us in our ministries for Christ to serve the Lord as Christ served. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do confess that we need help in serving you. We pray that you would continue to work in our hearts to give us a desire to follow you in every way. We pray that you would deal with the fear that is within us to open our mouths to say things to people we are so often plagued with the fear of man and what they'll think and how they'll respond and what they'll say but we do pray that you would give us a gentle and tender boldness to just speak a word for you as we have opportunity we pray that you would make us to be mindful to look for such opportunities that we would be bold witnesses for Christ. We pray that you'll bless us in this Lord's Day. And we pray that you would continue to minister to our congregation. And bless us as we come back again this evening to sit under the preaching of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.